0: Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we come to the matter of the eschaton, which which we all knew was coming because we just walked through a book, right? Uh, Paul has been writing to the church at Corinth to admonish the local church toward unity. Unity, he says, is accomplished through Maturity in the faith through a a growing of our understanding of our knowledge in the faith, but not just that because knowledge puffs up, right? But knowledge in love that is understanding. It is wisdom. It is knowledge for the purpose of edifying one another in the faith, not tearing down the household of God and not tearing down the the world that God wishes to preserve and redeem and to edify through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 20, Paul has already said to the church at Corinth, of course there was a debate going on within the church, or some people at least who were teaching that there is no resurrection of the dead. Paul said, if that's the case, if there is no resurrection, Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then Christians are most to be pitied among all people. Um, Why would Christians be most to be pitied among all people at that point? Well, because the very crux of our faith is a sham and a lie. The crux of our faith is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is his resurrection that ensures our own. Paul begins here in verse 20 by clarifying his own position. And we will read verse 20 through 28 together. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death by a man also came the resurrection of the dead for as in adam all die so also in christ all will be made alive but each in his own order christ the firstfruits; after that those who are christ's at his coming then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to god the father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted, not accepted, accepted, who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. The a big idea here. Paul professes his belief that there is indeed a resurrection. Christ has been raised. Therefore, those who are in Christ will also be raised. And the kingdom ultimately belongs to the Father uh, rather than the Son. So the Son will hand the kingdom to the Father after the end. And God will be all in all there, meaning the Father will be all in all. This is about the Father's glory. Let's begin in verse 20 and let's work our way through this text, this passage. this Can I say it? Pericope. okay. Verse 20. (laughs) But now Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen. Hallelujah. That is why we gather together, or one reason we gather together, to praise Christ who has been raised from the dead. Paul has already stated that there are more than 500 witnesses living in his own time who can testify to this fact. Christ was crucified on a Roman cross, and many people saw him after the third day, had experiences with him, touched him, talked to him, saw him ascend into the heavens. Now Christ has, this is definite, he has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. Now there is an interesting fact here presented in 1 Corinthians, but I think we see evidence of it throughout the Old Testament and through Scripture. Before Christ was raised from the dead, no one could experience this type of resurrection. And the type of resurrection we are talking about is bodily resurrection in a glorified state, which Paul will get at later here in 1 Corinthians, later here in chapter 15. And no one could experience the type of resurrection that Christ experienced until Christ did. He is the first fruits from the dead if Christ is the first fruits from the dead I I wonder when everyone else will experience the resurrection are there others currently who have experienced the resurrection or is it only Christ in our time well look at the text Christ, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For in an Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. That's future tense for Paul. But each one in, a, in his own order, Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming, there meaning his second coming. So this resurrection will be experienced at the second coming of Christ. And all the saints who are in Christ. From before his incarnation to now to the end of this age that we are currently in, all of those will experience resurrection at the time of Christ's second coming. Christ is the first fruits of those who are asleep. Verse 21 For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. And here is a claim that we only find in the Bible. In fact, other religious worldviews or people in general ask this question, right? When we start telling people about Jesus and what Jesus did for us, one of the questions that comes in response is why would God need to do that? Why would there need to be an incarnation? Why would the Son of God in the flesh need need to die on a cross in order for God to forgive sins or to atone for sins or restore the world? Why why would that need to happen? And why would he need to be raised from the dead in order for God to give anyone eternal life or in order for God to resurrect anyone else's body at the end of the age? Like why why? Isn't God more powerful than that? Couldn't God just couldn't God just do it without all that drama, right? Have you heard this question? Or have you have you wondered yourself about this fact? Uh, I know I have, and I, I think back to the Genesis account, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, before the fall even. God created the world, and I think we went over this last week, right? God created the world, and the pinnacle of his creation, the crown of his creation is humankind, and he created humankind in his image, and what instruction did he give humankind upon the earth to tend his garden to cultivate the earth to fill the earth to multiply he gave humankind the fish of the sea the birds of the air all of the cattle all of the plants so that humankind could steward that so that humankind could rule representatively right as the image of God within God's creation And God did this for his own glory within his creation. Why else insert your own image into your creation? Put your signature upon it in the form of humankind. Well, if God instructed humankind to rule the earth and gave this representative rule, this authority to humankind to rule over the earth and subdue it, and humankind plunges into sin, Genesis chapter 3, and takes all of creation with her because... Humankind has authority here. And Adam is the federal head here. When Adam sins, all of creation plummets into into a wretched estate with him. It is his representative rule that tore down God's creation. Adam was in charge. And he couldn't do it. But because of his sin, he couldn't cultivate the earth. Because of his sin, he severely limited the ability of humankind to multiply. We see that in in the, the disciplinary measures that God took against the woman. Now she will bear children in pain. Right? And all that is placed on Adam's shoulders as the federal head. And here we see it. Since by a man came death, Paul is alluding back to that story in Genesis chapter 1. The federal head of creation sinned and brought death to all creation which includes all humanity so when we say we are born in sin that is the claim we are making we are born into the iniquity of adam the iniquity of the flesh death came to all through adam as the federal head of creation the representative ruler of the whole earth now if god were to say after that moment up guess i made a mistake has just fixed this thing right here and renewed the whole world what would god be doing in that moment he would be denying his own instruction to adam to cultivate the earth to subdue it to fill it he would be denying his own design and his own word god would have to deny himself in order to just flat out correct everything Notice the second part of Paul's argument in this verse. For since by man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Like there's only one way this can be fixed, and that's if humankind, the representative ruler, bears some child that is raised up and never sins, is not trapped in the iniquity of his forefathers lives a perfect life according to God's standard, is righteous, and he becomes the federal head of creation in Adam's place. And it is only through such a one that the world can be redeemed. The Bible is the only one who gives us this, who gives us a God who is not incoherent in the things that he does. who gives us a God who is not contradictory in the things that he does. And so when the Quran says something like, God does not need a son, that statement makes the god of islam incoherent self contradictory because he is denying his own word denying himself that he gave representative ruling authority to humankind upon the earth the bible doesn't give us that kind of god instead the bible is entirely coherent since man by man came death by man also came the resurrection of the dead and here paul just highlighting the humanity of christ because the humanity of christ matters and yes christ is divine yes he is god yes he was with god and was god in the beginning and nothing was created made without him and nothing was created or made that wasn't created or made through him christ the word become flesh here. In Isaiah chapter 9, what do we read? We read this every Christmas almost. A child will be born. His name will be eternal Father. Isaiah tells us about the incarnation of God. His name will be Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be what no end to the increase of his government or of peace like this one being born the child will be the redeemer that the world needs and god will accomplish this the zeal of the lord of hosts will accomplish this if we use the words of the other prophets it will be god himself incarnate become man and he will give up his own flesh So that there can be a resurrection of the dead. And this union, when Christ becomes flesh, the incarnation, the union of the divine and and human, has been a matter of debate for centuries in the church. People struggled through the Middle Ages to, to understand Trinity. Some said it's incomprehensible, we shouldn't even try. But many tried to define the Trinity. And what exactly happened when when Christ became flesh? Some said he put away the divine nature. Well, to put away the divine nature would again be for God to deny himself. It cannot happen. He cannot put away the divine nature and become man for a time only to reacquire the divine nature later. Finally, a resolution was achieved when it came to Trinitarian thought regarding the incarnation of Christ and what sort of nature he had and still has because of the resurrection of his body. We call that the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union is the marriage of divine nature with human nature, and we came to the conclusion that Christ must be and can only be one person God, never have given up his divine identity. 100% God and 100% human, having two natures in tandem. So Christ in his incarnation didn't replace his divine nature with a human nature. Instead, he assumed a human nature in addition to his divine nature. And Paul is getting at that here. Therefore, we would never say God died upon the cross. Uh, We cannot say that because God, what, cannot die. And when we say Christ died upon the cross, we do not mean in his divine nature. Because you cannot kill a divine nature. When we say Christ died upon the cross, we mean that he gave his Body, his humanity for the sake of all humanity. And Paul recognizes that here. By man also came the resurrection of the dead, getting at the humanity of Christ. Christ gave his flesh, the flesh that he assumed. His divinity was never dead and God never died. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And I find this to be interesting because this statement is all-inclusive. And I'm sure some universalists go to this text and say, see, in Adam all die. We know that every single person on the face of the earth has to experience death because of Adam's sin as the federal head of creation. And this verse says, in Adam all die, and Christ All will be made alive. It's a universal statement. It's all-inclusive. And this statement is all-inclusive. That's why in the book of Revelation we read about two resurrections, one to death and life, and why Jesus in the book of John talked about one resurrection to death and one resurrection to life. All people truly will be resurrected as a result of Christ's work and as a result of his resurrection but some will be raised to eternal life and some will be raised to eternal torment to judgment verse 23 but each in his own order Christ the first fruits after that those who are Christ's at his coming and so this will happen at the second coming of Christ it didn't it didn't happen in his first coming because he gave his life and was raised from the dead after his first coming. So it can't be at his first coming. It must be at his second coming when he returns to the earth at the end of the age we are currently in, following his death, burial, and resurrection. Christ is the first fruit. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming will be raised, which means in bodily form, the flesh with the human nature and everything which is not normally the way we talk about the resurrection, is it? Then after this resurrection of those who are in Christ, then then comes the end. There's no waiting period after Christ's return here. There is no 1000 years inserted in here in this text. There's not a tribulation. No, there's Christ coming and then the end. And at the end, Christ, here in verse 24, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. That is what's next on the eschatological timeline. Christ coming, the resurrection of the saints, and then immediately Christ handing over the kingdom to the Father. We say that Christ is king. Yes? Amen. Amen. We say that he is Lord. Christ will not always hold the title king. Does that surprise you? According to this text, he will hand the kingdom to his God and father, and he will dwell with the saints forever. There will be no need for this type of king who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. This happens at the end. Upon Christ's return, this is what happens. He hands the kingdom over. He doesn't become king at his return. He hands the kingdom over to the Father at the resurrection of the saints, at at the end. And so it's not at that point he returns and begins to rule the nations with an iron scepter. No, at that point, he's finished ruling the nations with an iron scepter. And look what Paul even says here in 1 Corinthians. Continuing in Verse 24. This is also when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. So the assumption is Christ is doing this work now, ruling the nations with an iron scepter now. Decreasing all rule and all power and all authority of men now. Expanding the kingdom of heaven now. And upon his return, the resurrection of the saints and the handing over of the kingdom and everything he achieved to the Father. And at that point, there will be be no power left for the nations of humanity. Christ is doing away with it. I think we can look around and see Christ kind of taking that away. He's not doing so through a violent incursion He's doing so through the spread of the gospel and through showing the wisdom of the world to be foolishness, if we're to use Paul's words previously in 1 Corinthians. Upon that time, all of this work, work that people say will be done at the end of some seven-year tribulation and thousand-year millennial reign in the future, and after some secret rapture, Work that people say is waiting until that moment to even get started. But here, Paul's very plain claim is no, Christ is doing that now. And then the end will come, and he will hand all that over to his Father, and he will stop reigning with an iron scepter at that moment. Verse 25 For he must reign, present tense. Even as Paul writes 1 Corinthians, notice the present tense there, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And so after he has put all his enemies under his feet, then he will hand the kingdom to the Father. He's not finished doing that yet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. And we see a tension here in the text. Well, if Christ has already been given authority, which Paul claims he's already been given authority... When he was raised from the dead and he was talking with his disciples on the mount before the ascension, he told them Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on the earth has been given to me. So go out and make disciples, teach them to obey everything that I commanded you. This is the sword I want you to carry. It's my word. Take it and go and teach it. But then here we see that, wait, not everything is under his feet because if everything were under his feet so to speak he would hand the kingdom over to the father now the great commission would be done there would be no more need for evangelism at that point okay father here's the kingdom right and the last enemy that will be abolished is death but Paul already said Christ did that he defeated death so we find this tension in the text and I wrestled with this tension But growing up in Southern Baptist Church, I heard about the already not yet nature of the kingdom and even in Baptist seminary I heard about the already not yet nature of the kingdom, I have come to a conclusion, brother. I think that statement is a contradiction. something can't both be already done and not yet done at the same time. And I think that's common sense. One thing cannot be both already and not yet. And in verse 26, notice the word here, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Version, the word here uses abolish. I think that's a a fair translation of the text. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. And so... Death is already defeated, but not yet abolished, not entirely done away with. The victory is won, but it is still present, right? When, when one nation invades another and wins a war, not everyone in that country is just done away with at that moment, right? There are still rebels, still people who need to be subjugated, even though the victory is already won. And it is sure that the invading country will accomplish that. It just takes takes time, right? With Christ, though, I think it's a matter of grace because, because He is so good even to the worst of sinners and even to His worst enemies. Do you notice how good God is to the worst of sinners? Uh, yeah, I was one. Yeah? He's so good. To people who make him an enemy and to people who speak out against them. Saying, God, prove yourself by showing your wrath against me. Kill me now if you exist, right? People go out in the streets and they they say that. And God does not strike them down. Not because he's not there, but because, because he is gracious. And there are churches that deny the name of Jesus Christ by their actions and by the way they treat others and God allows them to persist. Why? Because he is good to the worst sinners. He's good to people who blaspheme his name and who lie and who murder and who kill and who hate. He's good to people. And so he has won the victory but not every enemy is yet abolished because of his grace. The kingdom is already The kingdom is here, but because of grace, Christ has not abolished all of his enemies. Christ had victory over death, defeated death, but death is not yet abolished, and death will be the last thing to be abolished. We see the promise of the kingdom. We mentioned Isaiah chapter 9 already. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. So I think we can look around. I think, I think we can see that. People are coming to Christ. Um, higher numbers than Pentecost daily are coming to Christ around the globe today. God is doing a great work in Muslim countries And in Afghanistan and in India and in Liberia, people are coming to Christ in the droves. California, where you wouldn't expect to experience revival or see God working that much, has had a great revival of reformed churches in the last five years being planted all around California. Canada is soon to follow and England and the United States of America and Douglas, Arizona. There will be revival because God is good and he is good to the worst of sinners. We can count on that whether we get to see it here or not, though I pray we do. Right. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. And I think about Isaiah chapter 65 where isaiah is prophesying yes about the millennial kingdom and he says no one will live less than a hundred years a hundred years old is going to be young and if anyone dies before he reaches a hundred he'll be considered cursed because he didn't even make it to such a young age right So we should expect, as we look at human history since the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we should expect to see life expectancy increasing. The number of years that people live from generation to generation increasing, and I I think we see that. Ultimately, I think God is using modern medicine and knowledge to accomplish that. All that is evidence that Christ's kingdom is here, that He reigns that He sits on the throne and that he is accomplishing his purpose in the world. Well, this isn't what you hear in most places, is it? But it is what Scripture tells us here. And look at verse 27. For he, Paul quotes from Psalm chapter 8, verse 6, he has put all things in subjection under his feet. Uh, But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted, E-X-C-E-P-T-E-D, who put all things in subjection to him. So the one, the Father, who put all things under the subjection of the Son, he didn't put himself under the subjection of the Son, right? He didn't subject himself to the Son. still about the Father's will. The Son is doing everything on the Father's behalf. I find it interesting that Paul quotes from Psalm chapter 8 verse 6 here go to psalm chapter 8 with me and let me read this psalm for you oh lord our lord how majestic is your name in all the earth who have displayed your splendor above the heavens from the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you would take thought of him? Well, man is inglorious, right? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, when David wrote this, he didn't say that this man was Jesus In fact, it seems pretty evident that in this psalm, David is writing generally about humankind, man, humankind. You have put all things under our our feet. Lord, you are so good. Thank you. You didn't have to do that. There's a a fear of us in in the hearts of animals. You have given us food to eat. You have given us your earth. Oh, praise your name. How majestic is your name in all the earth, O Lord we praise God for the same thing, for, for provision, for giving us places to live, for giving us work to do with our hands, for, for giving us authority over the earth to steward it and to cultivate it. That's what the psalmist is doing in Psalm chapter 8. So I find it so interesting that, that Paul quotes from this psalm with reference to Jesus Christ. And then I remember what Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, talking about the humanity of Christ, going to hypostatic union about Christ and his humanity as the new federal head of creation. And it's like, even though this psalm wasn't written particularly about Christ, Christ is the fulfillment of this psalm. and That's, that's what Paul is trying to say, like all things are in subjection under Christ's feet. He is the federal head of humanity, which means Jesus Christ represents all humanity now. Everything humanity was designed to do is fulfilled in the person of of Christ. And so Paul quotes from Psalm chapter 8 to show all of this stuff that God is doing can now be done Rightly and correctly and profitably because Christ is the federal head. Adam is no longer the federal head. It is Christ. So it is evident that the Father is the exception. He is not in subjection under Christ or under people. He is the one to whom all things are subjected is the Father. Verse 28 When all things are are subjected to him, that's the Father, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, the Father, so that God may be all in all. Notice, all things will not forever be subjected to Christ in his humanity. And again, we see that the ultimate goal, the end game, is for the kingdom of heaven to be established and for the father to be glorified by his creation as all in all with the son, always doing the will of the father as the federal head of humanity. And this is the way things will be forever following the resurrection and the end. They say, now wait, we definitely haven't heard these things in church before. Well, because passages like this are the passages that are often skipped. Because people don't think about the Father being all in all. Think about Christ being all in all. All, but the scriptures do not tell us Christ is all in all. This is the Father. Now, there's some trickiness to this because Christ and the Father are one. Christ is God and is with God, the Father, right? Two, two persons of the Trinity. So in Trinity, in the transcendent Trinity, God, we can say just God is all in all. But the point here is that Christ and His humanity and His flesh is not all in all. Though He has His flesh forever and He has His human nature forever. Now is this new theology or is this the theology of the ancients? Is this what the ancients understood to be God's plan from the beginning? Well, we read and Jeremiah chapter 33 verse two. God identifies himself through the prophet Jeremiah. He says, "I am the Lord. The, get this the one who created the world in order to establish it. So it has always been God's plan for things to be this way. He created it in order to, Establish it. There's not just this creation and cool, done. Now whatever happens, happens, and we'll pick up the pieces. No, he created it in order to establish it. Why? For his own glory. And this is why, especially considering eschatology, the eschaton end times, we can say we are living in the last days. The days before the end, when Christ will hand the kingdom over to his father and the saints will be resurrected. That's why we identify our current age as the 1,000-year reign of Christ because Christ is reigning now. When he returns, his reign in this capacity will cease according to 1 Corinthians, not begin. So we say, according to Scripture, we must be in this millennium that John refers to in Revelation, which only gets a few verses in all of Scripture, the millennium, a 1,000 years, right? Apocalyptic years, not literalistic years. That is the time we are currently in. It is also why, with the angels in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, we can sing and we can praise our God. Glory to God in the highest, peace upon the earth, good will to people he favors. Oh, here is Messiah's birth and death and resurrection. (laughs) Praise God. This is good news. If there is a tribulation, it's now and we're experiencing what it's like. It's not going to get worse overall we'll experience ups and downs but overall there will be no end to the increase of Christ's government or of peace because we believe the promise of the prophets and the promise of Christ and we also believe that Christ is bringing people longevity and blessing that all people will experience resurrection some to eternal life and some to judgment We believe that those who are in Christ will experience resurrection upon His return, at which point all war and all crying and all pain will have ceased because all those things will have been abolished, especially death, according to this passage. Amen? Amen. I hope you are encouraged this morning.